This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming to you from the worldwide headquarters in the middle of nowhere, it's the Jim Day Podcast. Hi, hello, and welcome to the Jim Day Podcast, and I'm immediately getting a laugh from my guest, which is great, because it is the crafty left-hander Chris Welsh finally making it to the Jim Day Podcast. And Welcome. the fans are filing in. Jim, you forgot the most important part. <laughs> and we were referring to Chris's longtime partner, George Grand, who we loved to death, would open up the broadcast. Hi, hello, and welcome to the big ballpark by the river. Fans continuing to file in, right? <laughs> he did it every time, and it took years until I fi- finally found out the origin uh, of that whole story because when I say every time, we know he did it every time. <laughs> and we would oftentimes tape it, you know, three and a half hours before the game, and there was yeah. nobody in the ballpark. But he knew that our tape guy would take a shot of the right. fans filing in and fill it all up. But uh, that was to honor his brother Carlos. who was Really? Uh, I yep, never knew and, that. And Carlos did the same thing. Really? In return. So he was on local news, I think Carlos was, and, and did some things regionally up in Connecticut. Uh, but every time he would open his show, he, I think he had a, uh, like a, a Sunday night sports talk show that George would go back and help with. And uh, that's how that started, and George kept that uh, tradition up, and probably still is. How did I never know that? Well, I mean, those are one of the just small little stories that you just don't know. You, maybe <laughs> well, you knew it at one time I and forgot. I had him on the podcast, and we didn't talk about that. Yeah. Ah, missed opportunity. But that's cool, though. That's very cool. I mean, we used to um, just say it. I mean, it was so in, embedded into our heads because he, hi, you know, every time I say hi, hello, and welcome, I'm like, oh, gee, grand money. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. How many years in the booth with George? 17 with George. Wow. And uh, it really flew by. I mean, I go back and <clears throat> go through all the changes. You know, when I first was hired, uh, I was hired as the Sports Channel Ohio color guy. And it was Sports Channel before Fox, Ohio. Correct. Yeah. And actually, I, let me take that back. <clears throat> I was actually hired as a Channel 5 over-the-air WLWT uh, announcer. The broadcasts were split into two. Half of them were on cable, which is Sports Channel Ohio. Right. And the other half were on uh, Channel 5, you know, WLWT, right. the NBC station. So <clears throat> we did that for a long time. And... Um, I got hired the first year of that, and then, then Gordy passed away over the winter. Gordy Coleman. Gordy Coleman uh, passed away over the winter, and then uh, I ended up taking both sides and uh, began working with George full-time. Those first years were kind of fun because over the air was a little different back in yeah. those days. Um, we had a great fan base in Cincinnati. They really loved it. So we would promo. I have a buddy who's a soap opera star. We'd promo him a couple weeks out, and we'd have so many people staying up at night 
well, he would visit the booth in Dodger Stadium, you know. Yeah. So it'd be one a.m. back home, but they didn't care. They wanted to see the soap opera star, uh, Donnie Hogerson or Drake Hogerson. Drake, who I met at Dodger Stadium a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. He played John Black on uh, Days of Our Lives. He still does, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. sure does. He that sure is does. unbelievable. That's still going. And then Marty would come over and do three innings in the middle of the broadcast. Yeah, I remember that. And um, Joe didn't like those days because that meant he had to do three extra innings when Marty basically <laughs> disappeared. Yeah. So he'd always want to, is this a Channel 5 game tonight? <laughs> and uh, Marty would come over and do three innings and always bring a little special energy, as you know. Oh, uh, yeah. It was a really cool thing, way to break it up. But those are fun days. Wow. Was it Marty was calling nine innings then, right? Was he doing nine or close to maybe eight? Oh, I think Joe did. He did the same break I- yeah. as far as play-by-play. Oh, okay. Uh, but Marty filled in the gaps. In Marty TV. Marty would have to be away for a couple of more innings with TV. So those innings, instead of working three innings, Joe may have had to work six innings. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So George had a big part in you getting the gig, keeping the gig, did he not? Well, I don't know about that. I, I guess that's something else I should thank him about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I asked him about it. He downplayed it, but he put all the credit to you. So I'll give the credit to you. You were crafty. Well, you know, I, I, I was, I, I tell you that uh, when I got this job originally, uh, it was as a Channel 5 guy. So when I was doing some college games down in Florida for Sports Channel Florida, made some phone calls, tried to find out who I should send my resume to, called up Channel 5, talked to a gentleman named Bill Spiegel, who was the general manager then, and uh, he said, uh, well, you know, we don't deal with resumes in this business. We deal with tapes. Tapes. You need a tape, man. I didn't have a tape. And this yeah. is back when VCRs were the size of suitcases. <laughs> so I put one on top of the other, wired them together, and, and tried to edit up a, uh, a little resume tape. It was so crude and rough with snow and dropouts and oh, yeah. sound was terrible and you know back in those days every generation of tape got worse and oh, worse yeah. and it was, it, you got, it was like a snowstorm <laughs> and uh, i sent it up and uh didn't hear from him and called him up said what's the deal he said well we'll get you uh you know we'll get you up here to work with our guy yeah uh, we've already hired george grand uh, if you're on the short list and uh, i said okay well a couple of days later i get the call and it's somebody that said hey uh, you got the job if you want it and I said, who is this? <laughs> he was Bill Spiegel, Channel 5. You got the res job if you want it. But that wasn't according to what they told me was going to happen. So I thought ah. it was a friend of mine playing a joke on me, so yeah. I hung up. <laughs> and then nice. he, he called me back and said, if you want the job, don't hang up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, rem- I, I have never sent a resume for any broadcasting gig. And I actually got a job before I graduated college. And I was thinking to myself, I already have a job. Why do I need this degree? Now, I toughed it out and got the degree, but not one person has ever asked me, do I have a degree? So I'm like, wow, why did I spend all that time? <laughs> Particularly yeah, all that money because I paid for my own college. When all you need is a tape, that's, uh, that's really what they care about. But, but anyways, um, crafty left-hander, who gave you that? George. Of course. <laughs> Georgie. Crafty because of uh, you had to be crafty. I well, I had to be because I didn't throw very hard, and yeah. uh, a lot of people. I had a really good curveball, always did. You know, through high school and college, and especially big in old looping curveball from the lefty. Yeah, I had a, had a big one and a smaller one too, but I always lived by the um, uh, 
one of the pitching foundations that was taught to me by Robin Roberts that you have to have two speeds on your breaking pitch. Yeah. Uh, but I had a strikeout one, which, you know, I can't say it's like any of these guys that throw today, but I threw it as hard as I could. Right. And if I had that day of a good release point, I would usually have a pretty good curveball. I wish I could go back in the days because I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I went to many Columbus Clippers games. And you pitched for the Clippers, and the which was then the Yankees organization. It was their AAA affiliate. And I know I had to watch you pitch before. I mean, I guarantee I've watched you pitch. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you have. I, I, pitched, I pitched pretty well in AAA, actually. Uh, I found with my stuff, the, the higher I got, the more difficult it was for me to get guys out because they were a little more protecting at the plate. And, and I mean, I was throwing you know, shutouts and, and complete games at about 83, 84 miles an hour. Now, I could throw harder, but I got hit harder. So I could, you know, really reach back and gas it up to 88 or 89, <laughs> but uh, which is probably over 90 by today's gun. Yeah, but, the gun's different. But anyway, uh, but the ball was straightened out. I lose my control. Uh, so I backed off a little bit at the, um, at the suggestion of Sammy Ellis, old-time wow. Reds uh, pitcher. I think he won 20 games yeah. in 1968. Well, Sammy was uh, responsible for me making that adjustment. Wow, you have uh, – do you ever hear – the Columbus Clippers games, and those that around Columbus know about ringing your bell. Columbus Clippers, ring your bell. And then the other song they had was Hometown Heroes. Yeah. yeah. The Clippers are <laughs> hometown heroes. Boy, yeah. The Clippers. Come on, Columbus you, Clippers. You passed the test, Jim Day. <laughs> Well, that's the beauty of having your own podcast. You can really do what you want and be act a fool. Uh, it's all right. You have you mentioned Sammy Ellis. You have been around, um, boy, some characters. Uh, particularly, well, let's start with the Clippers. You had who who was on your squad there? Well, Joe Altabelli was yeah. was a manager one year, and he had previously been the manager of the year in the National League for the Giants. So yeah. he was pretty big name. Um, Stick Michael, Gene Michael was was a manager yeah. the other other year. Um, you know what was really fun about being with the Yankees uh, minor leagues then is that all the AAA guys basically would be in spring training. So we were in spring training with guys like Thurman Munson and uh, Reggie Jackson and Tommy John and Ron yeah. Guidry and Gossage and Bucky Dent. And uh, I mean, it was – and they had, they were pretty good back then. Yeah. Uh, I was invited to spring training my first year when I was – uh, with them uh, in 1979, they won the World Series in '78, right? Right. And and uh, so they were really hitting the, the skies, and um, it was fun being down in Fort Lauderdale, uh, where oh, the I Yankees bet. were, because it was New York South. I bet. And uh, all you had to do was mention that you were with the Yankees, even though we were some lowly invitees. Didn't matter. We were getting free food. We were Heck, getting free yeah. drinks. It was uh, it was a great <laughs> spring training. Who uh, wasn't there a guy that who you walked in and you said to him, this part is for the people that are making it and all you that was Reggie Jackson yeah <laughs> what, did he say? what did he say he he, he said um, uh, he looked around the room he saw a whole bunch of rookies sitting in their lockers you know yeah. in spring training he's always kind of holding court uh, really good guy once you got to know him but he can be a little bit intimidating I he bet. walked in one day. And he looked around, he saw all of us, you know, greenhorns. And he said, you know, this ball club is made up of guys like Thurman Munson, Goose Gossage, and me. And then there's the rest of you happy to be here, blankety blanks. 
And I said, yep, that's me. <laughs> Raise my hand. That is great. So you get traded to the Padres, right? I got what traded, year was that? I got traded to the Padres on uh, April Fool's Day. <laughs> and the, the quick, that's perfect. Yeah, the quick story behind that was that we had curfew. We stayed at the uh, Galt Ocean Mile Hotel uh, in Lauderdale by the Sea. It's the Yankees' official hotel. And like a typical old Boy, ocean I wish hotel. could be a fly on the wall in that hotel you, back then. <laughs> you had to go through the lobby to get to your rooms. The rooms are out in the back by the yeah. beach, you know, but they're also, it's a single-story place. And you had to go through the lobby. Unless you went about three hotels down, got onto the beach, came up the beachway, and came in the back door. If you were past curfew, which is what we did a lot. And on this particular day, <laughs> I love that. The uh, so we get back to uh, I'm rooming with a good friend of mine named Tim Lawler, left-handed pitcher. Oh yeah. And uh, we we came into our room and we looked and there was the red light blinking on the phone. We meant you have a message. I'm like, well, nobody ever calls me on this phone. Must be a mistake. So I said, Lawler, go and pick that up. It's probably yours. He goes, I'm not picking that up. You pick it up. We looked at it like it was a, a spitting cobra because nobody wanted to go over there in case somebody checked our room and we were busted for, you know, curfew. I mean, that means immediately you're getting sent out to the Meyer Leagues. No questions asked, no trial. You're gone on the van. And uh, so, so we're sitting there debating as to who's going to pick it up. We turned the radio on. It will have an FM station. Uh, playing and a guy came on the DJ came on the, the all night FM DJ came on. Uh, his name is Steve Huntington and he actually runs the Jimmy Jimmy Buffett uh, uh, Sirius XM radio station. Really? So anyway, he he comes here. The Yankees have made a huge trade with the Padres and he reads the names. And I looked at Lotter. I said, "Did we just get traded?" So we look in the phone book to try to find the radio station's name. We call him up and said, "Would you read the names on that trade again?" And he said, "Who is this?" I said, "This is Chris Welsh. He's like, you've been traded." <laughs> you called the radio. You called the radio station, and I have become friends with that uh, guy. His name is Steve Huntington, and uh, <laughs> we've had. Uh, We've had a lot of chuckles about that over the years. Now you could just pick up your phone and find out all kinds of information. Back then you had to, well, if you didn't hear it live, you had right. to. And the messages were, you know, call Bill Burgess, you know, the general yeah. manager. Call Mr. Steinbrenner's office, you know, call Gene Michael, call Bob Lemon. You know, they, it was it was every who's who. They were trying to get a hold of us for, for hours. And, of course, we were probably across the street at Dirty Nellie's having a nightcap. <laughs> <laughs> and it was on April Fool's Day. So April Fool's Day. Did so you it, think that the DJ was maybe pulling your leg? Uh, that would be pretty extensive. Be, uh, yeah. yeah. But no, that, that is wild that the DJ, what's your name? Chris Welch, you've been traded so, from the FM DJ. And it was so different. When we, so they, they put us on a plane immediately out to Phoenix. The Padres then were actually training in Yuma, Arizona, which is basically a truck stop town, mm -hmm. a Mexican border town right along I-10. Nothing really pretty about it, but it was closer to, to San Diego. So, so we get into Phoenix, and, and uh, the team is on a road trip into Phoenix. And we go into the hotel. And remember that the Yankees back in those days, all the, all the uh, front office people were buttoned up, you know, three-piece pinstripe suits. It looked like they were all bankers, every one of them. So we get into this hotel lobby, and it's like a typical paradise, tropical paradise in Phoenix. Um, and... Um, it's a Valley Ho Hotel. It's just still there, actually, yeah. Yeah, on Main Street. And, and here's this guy in a Hawaiian 
uh, shirt. He's got white pants. He's got patent leather shoes with like Velcro ties on them. And he's got a patent leather white belt, big cigar hanging out of his mouth. It's Jack McKeon. Trader so we walk up Jack. and he goes, hey, boys, come over here. So he waves us over in the lobby. And he says, oh, you must be Lawler. You must be Welsh. You're the number four starter. You're the number five starter. I said, no, I'm Welsh. He goes, it doesn't matter. Welcome <laughs> to the big leagues. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is, we're, we're not in New York anymore. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. So McKeon was your first big league manager, right? He was first big league general manager. General, that time, that's man- what I meant, general manager. My first big league manager was Frank Howard. Right. Oh, man. The general giant. I... Are there any stories you can tell cleanly about Frank Howard? Frank Howard, the former Ohio State Buckeye, a larger than life man. How big was he? Six, he was six, eight, six, eight, like two, Over three bills. He was three, at least three, yeah, bills. three bills and could hit the ball a country mile when he was a player. Yeah. And um, he would let you guys have it from time most to time. Of the, right? Most of the stories, you know, about Frank, you know, he was a gentle giant, except like two or three times a year. Yeah. It's almost like he had clutter overload. Where he just heard enough sniping and this and that. He just heard enough and heard enough and heard enough. And um, he would tell uh, Ed Brinkman, who was from Cincinnati, uh, he used to call him Wimpy because Brinkman's kind of a slightly built, short, you know, shorter, yeah. uh, shortstop type. And um, Brinkman played short and, and Frank played left. And um, Frank let Brinkman take any, any pop up he wanted. Wimpy, you take whatever you want. I'll be behind you. But um, he would tell Wimpy, Wimpy, tell those players there's going to be a meeting. And he'll, he'll say, lock the door. Uh-oh. So he'll go in there and he'd slam the door, and then you'd hear it lock. And then he would come around the corner, he having worked himself up into a uh, uh, just a froth. He was so excited. I mean, angry. And he had taken his shirt off, and his shirt was like just fire engine red and not a shirt i mean his skin was yeah. fire engine red and he would parade up and down there would be spittle coming out of his mouth and he would be calling us every name in the book and <laughs> every baseball cliche you ever heard was in every one of these speeches it was the greatest thing ever and uh, so but we, i love frank howard i mean he was such a genuine guy yeah he really was but he wasn't he had to be intimidating particularly when he's did he ever like personally call you out like hey welsh you no, he didn't do that individually. He, uh, he, he yeah, would wait and do everybody at one time, but he had a pretty good memory. I did something early in the year um, that he called me out on in, in, in a team speech in September. I'm not sure how that connector went in his brain, but all of a sudden, I'm, my name was like, couldn't find Rupert, and I couldn't find Welsh. I'm like, oh, I remember that one. <laughs> couldn't find you as in? Couldn't, couldn't find, F-I-N-E. Couldn't, oh, fine. Yeah, oh, find okay. me for whatever I was doing wrong. Pardon my mind going to find like you're missing curfew again. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you were an ornery young guy. Am I reading that right? Not really ornery. (laughs) I I was probably more of a a primo. You know, a primo bimo is what they called me sometimes in college because I, you know, walk around like a prima donna. But uh, But you still do. I wasn't really ornery. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, some things hopefully will never change. Well, speaking of calling you out individually, the you know your mostly broadcast partner now. You have to put up with me sometimes and play by play booth. But Tom likes to bring up old Dick Williams <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> on the air, who was uh, 
Wow, how do you describe Dick Williams? Uh, he was an ornery guy. He was an ornery guy. Yeah. He had an edge to him, and uh, you didn't get along necessarily well, with Dick no, Williams. Well, I, no, I didn't. I, it, you know, Dick Dick has a pretty good track record. You well, know, oh, Hall big of time. Fame manager. Big so, time. Um, but he would wear his welcome out, and I was just one of the guys that, like, <clears throat> like he just chose to be maybe his whipping boy. I don't know. And it started when I was I late. I can relate. I'm a lot of people's whipping boy, by the way. It started when I was pitching for Dick the first year he came in, and he, uh, I was late covering first base, and Don Baylor slides into first base, feet first, and I get there at the same time he does, and evidently he injures my foot, and I don't know it. So... Now bases are loaded. I get out of the jam by striking out Brian Downing. I remember it. And then as I, as I went to run off the mound, um, the bone that Don Baylor slid into evidently broke open. He, he, had, he, had, he must have cracked it. Yeah. But I didn't know it because I never really put my foot on my, the ball of my feet in a certain way. But when I did to start running, that's when – and I went down. And Dick Williams thought I was kidding around. I'm, I, I'm not kidding around my foot. And he started berating me. For being late covering first base, not how's your foot? We're going to get you X-rays. So as it turned out, I ended up having a broken foot. It was like a week before the season began. Oh, bummer! And and he it left him having to redo his whole pitching, right? Because of that. So I got off to a bad start, and then uh, it, it really peaked uh, right in in the city of Pittsburgh when I I was. Uh, well, we had had this thing to go on and off. He, 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 he had me in a pitch out in spring training. I mean, a, uh, basically an audition with one other guy that looked like Fernando Valenzuela. The Reds were so, I mean, the uh, Padres were so wanting to find a pitcher to answer Fernando in in Los Angeles. Yeah. So they Fernando they, mania. They found a left-hander that uh, I had had a pitch out against the very last game of spring training. Whoever pitched the best was on the team. Wow. And of course, that kid. Who had only played double A the year before? I think they were just doing it to, to kind of mess with me. Anyway, I got, he did that, and then over here in Pittsburgh one night, I uh, um, kept throwing over to first base. Believe it or not, and he got <laughs> angry about that because we had a play on where I'm sorry, I throw at home, catcher fakes the second when the runner wants to steal yeah. second, and he's going to pick the runner off third base. You know the old first and third thing. And I'm like, God, that has not worked since the river rose. So <laughs> I was going to throw the ball home. I decided at the very last second, the runner's going to steal. Maybe I can pick him off. And said, I threw over. And as soon as I had that ball hit the glove at first base, I heard the clipboard and, and bats and everything being thrown around a dugout. And he was angry at me for not following his orders by throwing home. And um, basically the thing got out of hand. And uh, I was – traded like the next day or two he went to dick he went dick williams went to uh jack mckeon and said get rid of him and i got traded to montreal and it was a very very sad part of my baseball life really because uh i wish i had not done it number one but i also wish that he had come to his senses because i did go to him after the game and say hey i just want to come in and apologize he said get out of here i'm talking to the press so, yeah, there was no love loss, uh, you know, between Dick Williams well, and Well, the guys that. were hardcore back then. Yeah. yeah well, I'm were, sorry to yeah. bring up a sore subject, That's but right. it is very funny, though. That, uh, well, you know, you know, it is. 40 years later, <laughs> it doesn't hurt quite as much. Well, we hear often about the story of you throwing over with um, Coleman. Yeah. 
and this is a true story. You threw over seventeen times. True story, times. but very first time I I, um, I came back and pitched as a Cincinnati Red. Yes, I had started the season down in uh, AAA Denver. I played for the Zephyrs and uh, got called up. You know, at the very end of the month and uh, pitch up there, and I pitch eight innings, and we lose two to one. And all I'm remembered for is throwing over to Vince Coleman when he was the first base in the first inning. <laughs> he was the first batter, and I threw over like seventeen times. And this is when George Grant was working for ESPN. Yeah. And he said he took all those throwovers and spliced them together really fast, you know, to make it look like Keystone Cops. And he, <laughs> Did he really? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know it that, <laughs> that he was doing that at the time. And uh, so he always made a big deal out of it. But, and, I, and you know what? He stole second base on the 18th. <laughs> I know. That's an amazing thing. My philosophy was throw over one more time than you think you should. Nice. And that can go on and on and on, right? <laughs> and but I did pick him off later in the game, and uh, he was a pain. He was always on base oh, and yeah. always wanting to run. Absolutely. And back when they did run consistently in baseball, you told a story the other night going back to your Padres days. They had their own plane, right? But you guys didn't <laughs> yeah. always use it. We we um, the Padres had their own plane before it became Vogue. Yeah. The teams and uh, you know they didn't have charters quite like they do now. And um, we uh, we were, but we didn't fly it. <laughs> Ray Kroc owned the Padres, who owns McDonald's, right? Yeah. Pretty pretty successful business guy, and he uh, buys this plane and then leases it out to the other teams. So we are on our way from San Diego to Montreal. We have a connection in Chicago. Our team does. So we're sitting in the gate area, which you'd never see nowadays. See, a lot of these players don't understand how they travel. But, yeah. Um, it was kind of like minor league travel. But anyway, so we're sitting there. We're kind of bemoaning the fact that our plane out of Montreal is going to be late and we're going to be getting in much later than we originally thought and so on. And we look out the window and tooling down the, you know, the tarmac is the San Diego Padres team plane with the Oakland A's on it. <laughs> boy, oh boy, that was not a good day to be the traveling secretary. I tell you Did he get killed? Oh, he got killed. Doc Matai. Doc Matai. Doc Matai, they killed him. <laughs> That's brutal. <laughs> own your own plane yeah. and the Oakland A's are on it. You know it. what used to happen? Uh, people don't talk about this, but baseball players are always, by according to certain basic agreements they've had, that they're always going to fly first class wherever they go. That's just the way it is. If you're on the 40-man roster, you're flying first class. Yeah. If you're on a big league roster during the season, you're flying first class. But back in these days when we had a plane, We'd fly commercial, but fly first class. But not everybody can fit, obviously, in that right. front coach. So the airline's definition is having a middle seat empty. So there'd be two guys in a row with a middle seat empty. That would be the, the best they could do for first class. And uh, I remember times that uh, there were people sitting in some of these middle seats when we would board the plane on a connector flight. For instance, like we were in Chicago to go to Montreal. Yeah. And um, they had to kick people off the plane. Oh, and I remember a couple of times this little old lady, you know, I said, no, no, she can sit here. She can sit here. But by rule, they couldn't do it. It, it, it was oh, the craziest thing. So wow. uh, I'm glad that we don't run into any kind of those uh, transportation uh, gaffes anymore. We travel so now. I mean, you and I get to travel with the team 99% um, of the time. Um, it's ridiculous how nice it is. I mean, it wears on you, the, the travel, the grind, but... Um, it's ridiculous how nice it is to have a chartered plane. 
So I it's, feel extremely yeah. blessed that I'm even even have a seat. Short of owning your own, it's about as good as you can <laughs> yeah. go. Except being in the last row by the <laughs> by me by the lavatory. We're in the dead last row yeah. right there by the old commode, if you will. But it's all good. I'd sit on the wing if I had to. Now you, um, I got I wrote down some things, some stories you've told over time. Uh, Steve Garvey was with the Padres, right? Yeah, and Garvey was. You guys played a prank on him with well, his spikes you know, one day. Maybe we we could be meaning we being my the same guy, Tim Lawler, who was uh, <clears throat> ornery guy, right? Uh, yeah, just a fun loving guy, yeah. really fun loving guy. And we were out fishing. He's a big outdoorsman. We were out fishing one day in Phoenix, of all places. But they sell these uh, these live baits that are like a combination of a frog and a lizard. I think they call them uh, water dogs or something. Actually, they look like kind of catfish with feet on them. And, um, of course, we didn't catch any fish. We had a lot of these left over. We brought them in really early in the morning in Padre Camp and put them in all Steve Garvey's shoes. <laughs> Boy. Which, which Reds fans right now are loving the former yeah. Dodger, Steve Garvey. Because he was always very clean, you know. Oh, yeah. Everything was very nice, perfectly he looked perfect in a uniform. All right? the time, yeah. And uh, Big old forearms. Big, I mean, he looked right. like so he did not like his shoes desecrated, and he was as angry as I have ever seen a baseball player at 8 in the morning when he showed up. That may be my favorite story ever. Oh, gosh. Because this is a kid, Took man. Him out and and he, he pulled one out and you know kind of held it by the tail or the leg. And like, he was disgusted. He just threw his, threw his shoes away. This is back in the days where you did not throw your shoes away right. because you weren't getting as many as they are now. Yeah. But that was a fun story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a kid, man, I didn't like I didn't like the Dodgers or Steve Garvey, and I didn't like him when he was with the Padres either. So I love that story. Uh, Whitey Herzog, what, he was a, a coach on when this. Yeah. The uh, the Gary Coleman. Oh, that's Whitey Wiedelman. Whitey Wiedelman. Yeah, Whitey Herzog, of course, uh, the manager yeah. of the. Uh, the How did I get that one wrong? That's all right. Whitey Wiedelman. You have to look different him up in baseball ref because what he's... a great name, by the way. Yeah, Whitey Wiedelman. And I believe he played for and or coached with the Cincinnati Reds. He was also working their in their locker room area. I think uh, way back in the days with Bernie Stowe, and he was a. Uh, the, a clubhouse like attendant in our clubhouse at the Padres. Padres had a, like a typical clubhouse, home clubhouse. They'd have a dressing area, shower area, area for the trainer, and then they'd have a separate room where they would have a ping pong table or a pool table or maybe some snacks, things like that. Well, at the very height of, I'm trying to remember that, that Gary Coleman was a little actor, a child yeah. actor. Yeah, he and was, he was on Different uh, Strokes. Different Strokes. For, yeah, yeah, he was a huge star then, and he was in the baseball movie. He was the manager of the Padres. Correct, in a, a baseball movie, and yeah. he was he was hitting it as big as it was ever going to get oh, for yeah. him. No, he was a huge star. Now, Whitey Wiedelman is this gruff, old product of the 40s and 50s of travel baseball and chewing tobacco and just being a rough man's man. And he had this <clears throat> love of this, paint, of this pool table. It was in the player's lounge. Loved it. We weren't allowed to have drinks near it, snacks near it, <laughs> don't lean on it, you know, the whole thing. Whitey comes into the room one, one time, and um, we had heard that Gary Coleman was going to be there to throw out the first pitch. And he sees this kid sitting on the oh, pool no. table, sitting <laughs> on the edge of his pool table. <laughs> 
And he went ballistic and ran over to the kid and grabbed him by the top of the ear, you know, like a like an old principal might do one kid in a in an elementary school, and marched him right out of the out of the players' lounge and then down that long hallway that it's basically a service road underneath the stadium at Jack Murphy Stadium. I mean, a long way. And he's like, Coleman is being held up by one ear, and he's like bouncing along, and one leg's not even touching the ground, and he's kind of yelping, and, and Wiedemann's like, sit on my pool table, will you? And, and, uh, and he turned the corner, and of course, there were all of Gary Coleman's handlers, his agent, his producer. Trying to you know. explain you've got one of the biggest and they're like, stars. And he's going, help, help. <laughs> Poor Whitey. We stuck up for Whitey, but he, he didn't care. And, and he wouldn't back down. He said, I don't care who it is. He's not sitting on my pool table. <laughs> so we loved it. Those are good days back then. Oh, it's great days. Oh, you, uh, you also pitched in Venezuela. You had some stuff thrown at you. Correct. Yeah, the very first time I didn't realize how serious they took their baseball in Venezuela. And, uh, I was out of the big leagues the year I went down, so I played I some big league ball. I would have loved to have seen this. And then the so the expectations for every team is very high because they are gambling on every game. They're gambling on who's going to get the first strikeout, who's going to score the first run, right? What the score may be, whatever it is. So I had had a couple of weeks between the time I pitched and was going down to Venezuela. I was basically kind of not very sharp, not really in shape, because two weeks can get you out of shape if you don't do anything, and. Uh, I get down there on my first outing, man. I'm getting blasted. I look up and I'm like, wow, these are like big league hitters in the batter's box here. This is pretty good competition. I better turn it up. So I gave up three runs, I think, in the first inning that I pitched. And the home team was booing me, I mean, as hard as anybody's ever been booed. And I'm like, holy smokes. I look up and now there's stuff coming out of the stands like batteries and radios and, and wadded up uh, beer cans and wadded up paper cups and everything. And we had a, uh, a guard down there who was like our Secret Service attache assigned to our team. His name was Turco. You ask anybody who played down in, the, in Venezuela in, in the late 70s and 80s, they know who Turco is. And uh, evidently worked for some myster- mysterious uh, defense arm that they had down there. And he ran out to the mound. He actually pulled a gun out of his, his holster. And he held it above his head. It was like a 40 Come on. And everybody in the stands like sat down. And, I, and, I, and he walked me off the mound. <laughs> and he looked at me, got a dugout. I'm like, hey, thanks, Turco. He goes, next time you better pitch better. <laughs> like, oh. Well, these are, these are in the days, and everybody who played down here will tell you the same thing, that we had a guard in the dugout yeah. with like a – little machine gun and you know the the bullets uh, are draped across your chest you know in an x fashion yeah yeah <laughs> what a different world it was I, back it, then. yeah it was oh you've got a million stories uh, um I, I sit here all day and listen to these old stories i love old baseball stories i, I just i love them i i can't get enough of them um but I got to talk about baseball a little bit with you, like baseball of today okay <laughs> um You've got us. How many years now? Twenty seven years as an announcer. Years. Yeah. Are you still enjoying it as much as? Oh, ever very in much. The booth? Yeah, yeah. This is the greatest gig. It really is. I, uh, I pinch myself all the time. 
Uh, you had you and I had that same discussion when we were in oh, yeah. Chicago. Chicago. I mean, can you believe here we are announcing Reds games on Major League Television yeah. on Fox Sports in a booth where Harry Carey worked within six feet of us? Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. So there's really never a bad day, no matter how long the game may be, how many rain delays you have, yeah. how many, how boring it could be. Um, you know how the travel. Uh, the thing you miss, obviously, over the years, you miss things at home with the kids yeah. in the summertime. You make up for it with the months off in the wintertime. Uh, but still, you do miss a lot of stuff. Um, so there's always um, compromises that you make. But it's it's a really a, been a fun job, and I'm, I'm just delighted and surprised, actually, that I've been able to hold on to it this long. I'm shocked that I'm, one, there, and two, holding on. When they, I've said this before, when high-definition television came along, I told my friends, I'm done. There's no chance I could make it with high definition television, um, but I can't. You know, growing up a Reds fan, and that like that moment you said in Wrigley, in the booth, I'm like, I, I, I literally can't believe I'm getting ready. I don't even know how it happened, how I got in the booth. It just kind of started mixing me in. But I'm getting ready to call a Reds game at Wrigley Field. It's packed, and I just, I, I can't, I can't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I really can't. It's. Uh... And it's also interesting to to look at and remember all the players that you know oh. we've met and the coaches and, and they know and my front name office now. people all, all these, along the way. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean the, when Joe Morgan says my name, I'm like, yeah, Joe Morgan knows my name. Johnny Bench knows my name. You know, you know when Johnny Bench knew my name is when I was pitched against the pitched against the Reds back in I think 1981 and actually threw a shutout, <clears throat> beat them four to nothing. It was I think it was in early September. This is when they had. Uh, Player strike, so they had two halves of the season. The Reds ended up with the best record in baseball overall, but won neither half of the season, so they didn't go to the playoffs. They missed by a game. Yeah. Could be my game. Anyway, <laughs> we're playing the old Jack Murphy Stadium, and it was like 417 feet to dead center field, and they had a 17 foot walk. And it could have been, I think it was 420 with a 17 foot walk. That is crazy. And the ball didn't carry there anyway. Yeah. And I'm pitching against the Reds, and, uh, I mean, I was overwhelmed because, um, you know, these are all the guys. Bench was still on the team. Perez was on the team. Um, Concepcion you know, was still on the team then. Uh, was who? Concepcion was. Concepcion on, yeah. was on the team definitely. Yeah. So and and Griffey and and so there was a lot of, of players. Um, um, so anyway, we. Um, I think Foster was on that team still then. It was later that he got traded to the went to the Mets. But anyway. Um, I was pitching a pretty good game, but Johnny Bench hit three balls off of me that were to dead center field that Rupert Jones caught up against the fence at dead center field. And, 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 uh, Which would be out at Riverfront. So he would take a oh, way out at Riverfront. Yeah. And so he'd take a left around uh, first base. He'd go back to the dugout. And he'd say, uh, go warm up. <laughs> so the next one, I'm throwing in there a little nothing and he hits it as hard as he can and it goes to center field and it's caught again at the warning track. Comes back and says, go warm up. And, and, and then the third time through, same thing happened. Hit a long fly into the gap. There's Rupert Jones to make the catch. Third out or second out of the inning, here comes Bench around the mat. He goes, God damn it, Welsh, go warm up. And I said to myself, Johnny Bench knows my name. So this is awesome. <laughs> That's great. Oh, and you got to play uh, with the Reds, hometown team, which had to be awesome. And Pete was the manager. 
people, you know, it was Pete. It was because of Pete that I became a Reb. Yeah. I uh, this is back in the days of collusion. No teams are signing anybody, even released players like me. So technically, I was a free agent, but I'm really a released player. I'm not a free yeah. agent, you know, asking yeah. for a big deal. So I just was asking for a, um, uh, you know, an invite to spring trading. Right. So <clears throat> went through every team, couldn't get anything. Then I heard that Pete Rose was filming a commercial at my old school, University of South Florida, up in Tampa, 50 mile drive for me. So I hopped in my car. I'm going to drive up the USF. I'm going to find Pete Rose. I'm going to tell him I want to play for the Reds. I was out of options. I mean, yeah. I, I had no other choice. Right. Spring training was going to start like tomorrow. So I see Pete on the, on the field and between shoots, and he, and he comes over, and I've always pitched really well against Pete. And he goes, Chris, how you doing? How you doing? Good to see you. Who are you going to be with? And I said, well, <laughs> didn't you hear I'm going to be with the Reds? He goes, you are? That's great. I said, no, no, listen, I talked to Bill Berger. He didn't want anything to do with me. He said, what? That SOB? He goes, I run this ball club. He doesn't run this ball club. You be down at the ballpark tomorrow at 8 a.m., and I'll have a uniform with your name on it in the locker. That is tremendous. True story. And sure enough, I show up at Al Lopez Field, kind of coming and sneaking in there, you know, looking around, and uh, there's my name on, on a jersey hanging in a locker. Wow. Because, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Well, he so did now, run the team, actually. Well, so then, you know, I had uh, a general manager extremely annoyed at me, but I had Pete Rose on my side. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I like your odds <laughs> in Cincinnati. And I had a very good spring. almost made the team. In fact, the first two batters I faced that year were um, with the Twins. One of them was Billy Bean. I gave up two doubles. And uh, a couple of other guys pitched in that game. I remember Hal McCoy wrote in the Dayton Daily News, uh, all the guys that pitched today, and he named them, including me. He goes, we'll probably never see them again. Very mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> so I never let Hal forget that I was going to say, do you bring that up? Oh, yeah. He yeah. Probably, that's like a throwaway line that he probably didn't even remember. Sure. Oh, he didn't. He, I don't think he even remembered me. Written thousands and of stories. So, But I, I didn't give up another base runner to second base the rest of the spring. Wow. And had one of these incredible, immaculate springs, right? And I uh, was all set to make the team. And they couldn't decide whether Mario Soto was going to go on the DL or whether he was going to start opening day. So um, at the very last minute, I mean, my stuff was on the truck and on the bus. And at the very last minute, they came up to me and pulled me off the bus and said, hey, you're, you're going to Denver, and uh. Mario thinks he can make the start. So I joked that, hey, the, you know, the bus pulled over on I-4 and just tossed my bags out. <laughs> I had a hitchhike the way to the airport. <laughs> no, but that was the way. I got called up later in the season. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it was it was uh, incredible playing for Pete Rose. I mean, having grown up in Cincinnati, uh, we were always told as, you know, kids, you know, yeah. if that guy can do it, you can do it. You know, run to first base, hustle on the field, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's basically why I think that, a lot of Reds fans are the way they are about running balls out oh, and absolutely. showing a full effort. No question. Because of the example set by Pete Rose. No question. I, I still get irritated when I don't see someone running it out, yeah. jogging down. And that one time when the guy drops the ball and then he gets, still gets thrown out. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> you know, we sound like curmudgeons, but Pete wouldn't have done that. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. And, um, you know, for, for Pete – who was, as we all know, very good with numbers, he was still a guy that, that 
realize that the, the game really has a heartbeat. Yeah. And I remember him telling me one time he was the, the one the unique thing about that year for me was that when I started a game twenty I started twenty five games for the Reds when Pete, who's a player manager, play, it was the last year he played when he would play himself at first base, which was about half the time. Um, we had six players on the field all at the high school in Cincinnati. Wow. And that's kind of an unusual thing, especially a small market like Huge, Cincinnati. That's very unusual. So it was Pete and myself and then Buddy Bell. Buddy Bell. And Barry Larkin mm-hmm. and Ronnie Oster and Dave Parker. Wow. So it was really – That's uh, un- Just to something. be on that field, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And so, it, But playing for Pete was uh, incredible. He, he was just really incredible person to be around. Even though you had to shave the stash to be on the Reds, who had a no hair facial hair policy back then, I did it three times: once to, to throw batting practice when I was in college, um, once to uh, when I played for the Reds, yeah, uh, before they abolished that policy, and once as a broadcaster. When Jim Bowden talked me into to, to, to uh, believing that Marge Shot wanted me to shave, and she had the power to make me shave, it was like his first year as GM. And, Jim Bowden and, yeah, made you and, and the boy wonder pushed me on it a little bit. And I went home and talked to my wife. She said, why risk a problem? You know, just go ahead and shave it. But then I grew it back, as you know. He could look at those old tapes. Heck yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did not know that yeah. Jim Bowden yeah. pulled, pulled one over he on did you. He pull one on me, yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow, now that I think about it, that is kind of Jim Bowden-ish. That's beautiful, though. <laughs> yeah, he was. I'll tell you, he, he was a very creative guy. Yeah, no, he yeah. was. He was got you to think. But I bet you, Marge would have liked you have sh- to shave it anyways. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> you've got. You've been around so many people. Got so many stories to tell. Um, please come back. All right. We'll we, we, we've got to get on a bus here to get uh, to the stadium. Some of us have to get under the bus. <laughs> here we go. The old. <laughs> How many times have you said that to me on the on the air over the years? Say, well, hey. What time is the bus tomorrow? I say, 10 o'clock, be under it. <laughs> exactly. And you, with that, we say adieu. You, uh, you and Tom love to get on me on the air. I don't know if people have noticed at all. Um, it's like every other inning. But <laughs> well, you know, this, is, this is a business where we laugh a lot. And, uh, oh, yeah. Sometimes we're laughing with you, and sometimes we're laughing at you. <laughs> it's usually at me, but I have to wear it like a badge of honor. But thank you. Thanks for helping me in the booth, by the way. It's a pleasure working in the booth with you. You bring a lot of insight, and you're up on the, the changing of baseball, the analytics. You're, you're on the cutting edge of it. So it's well, very enjoyable. You come a long way, Jim Day, uh, on your play-by-play. <laughs> you do a great job now. I really enjoy being with you. So, oh, you don't have to butter me, for, up. Uh, butter me up now. Thanks for breaking me into the big time here. I knew <laughs> yeah. that you needed me at some point down the road, out of the bullpen. I'm glad to help out. Chris Welsh, out of the bullpen. Thank you very much. We will certainly have him back. Where are you on uh, – we got to plug a couple things here. Uh, let's see, on Twitter, you're Think Pitch, right? Uh, yep, at Think Pitch. I'm also at Rules Academy. Uh, yeah, which is my baseball rules academy uh, website Twitter handle. Check and this out, people. If you you want to know about baseball rules, and I mean in depth baseball rules, there's no better site than baseballrulesacademy.com. If you love baseball, it's a must see. 
And I applaud you. That that website is terrific. Well, it's perfectly free to sign up right now. I'm funding it, and I think it's kind of a, a good community service for people that want. Absolutely. I've but learned a tremendous amount on we're that. Getting, um, during the height of the baseball season with youth baseball going at its height, uh, we were getting uh, around 3,000 people mm-hmm. a day on that site. That's great. So um, it, it's, again, perfectly free. We're going, we're going to relaunch the site into something a little bit more updated pretty soon with more high school rules, more international rules. We're going to branch off into softball and do all sorts of things. That like is that. great. I love the first search first. engine. You can go in there. If you've got something that, you, it's, that comes up in a game, you can immediately go, and it'll give you – uh, not only an explanation, you got videos on there, you got umpires on the actual major league umpires explaining yeah. stuff to you, and Ted Barrett's on there. Uh, Thanks for the plug. No, absolutely. Check it out, baseballrulesacademy.com. He's Think Pitch on Twitter. If you'd like to check me out, at Jim Day TV on Twitter and Instagram. And we thank you for checking out the Jim Day podcast. We hope you subscribe, rate, and review, and spread the word. Thanks again to the crafty left-hander, Chris Welsh. I'm Jim Day. We'll see you on down the road, everyone.